Hello, and welcome to SoberCast, where we provide AA speaker meetings and workshops in podcast format. We're an ad-free podcast, and if you enjoy listening, please help us be self-supporting by visiting SoberCast.com, look for the donate link, and drop a dollar or two into our virtual basket. We hope you enjoy the podcast. Have a great day. Uh, good evening. My name is John, and I'm an alcoholic. <laughs> It's a good thing I don't have epilepsy. I think one of them cause a fit. Um, thank you very much uh, for um, uh, asking me to come and share tonight. Um, a lot of people um, came up to me during the break because they figured it would be uh, tough to um, say anything afterwards and thank me. I'd have to change my pitch now and make it interesting, I guess, so that they, <laughs> they don't feel as though they were disappointed. Wow. Um, if I stay sober till uh, this coming Tuesday, I will be uh, in this program for uh, 14 years. And in that time, <laughs> you guys should know better than that. A little man once told me that uh, congratulating a drunk for not drinking is like uh, giving a trophy to a cobbler with hemorrhoids for not riding his horse. Uh, <laughs> um, All right, so that you know, you know, I've often wondered when speakers get up sometime, I notice that they take their watch off and put it on the podium to watch their time. I've never understood that. I can see my watch quite well enough here on my wrist. <laughs> um, just so that you know, hello. Good Lord. <laughs> this is very cool. It is very cool that you're all here, you know, not for me, but for yourself. It's very cool that you're here. Uh, so that you know that I do belong here. Uh, I drank um, as much as I could get my hands on, as often as I could, for as long as I could. Um, as an old, uh, I'm sure many of you have heard this, but there's a, uh, I'm part Irish. Um, you know, the CIA, a Catholic Irish alcoholic. Um, <laughs> there's, an old Irish, there's an old Irish joke that sort of um, really describes well the way that I, I thought about alcohol. I said it's an old joke, and many of you have heard it, I'm sure. Maybe some of the young ones in the room haven't. Supposedly an Irishman, we'll call him Patty, just for the sake of argument. I was walking along the beach one day, very thirsty, very tired, and I came across a, um, a bottle, empty bottle in the uh, sand at the beach, and he picked it up and tried to rub it off in order to see what it had on the label, and out of the bottle, smoke all of a sudden appeared, and above him was this huge genie appears above him. And the genie thanks him for getting him out of the bottle. He had been there for thousands and thousands of years. And because the genie was so grateful, he told the Irishman that he would give him two wishes. And the Irishman first looked at the genie and said, Well, you know, I've been walking on this beach for hours, and I'm very, very thirsty. I would, I would love just a big pint of Guinness. And the genie snaps his fingers. And in the hand of the Irishman appears this huge pint of Guinness, chocolate-colored liquid with this beautiful khaki-colored foam falling out of the top of the bottle. Out of the... <laughs> and... Um, the Irishman goes, glory be to God, and he drinks it down. As he takes it away from his lips, uh, the pint begins to fill again until it's again to the top of the, of the mug. And he is astonished, takes it and downs it. Oh, glory be to God. And as he takes it away from his hand, it again fills to the top, overflowing across his fingers like some sort of beautiful golden liquid. <laughs> and the Irishman looks at the genie and says, now what's this? And the genie said, that is the eternal pint of Guinness. It will never be empty. Every time you drink it and take it away from your lips, it will fill again. For all of eternity, it shall never be empty. And Jeannie says, that is your first wish. And for your second wish, and the Irishman says, well, I'll have another one of these. 
<laughs> but that's how I drank. That's how I felt about alcohol. But it could never be enough. Uh, and the more there was, the, uh, the better I felt. Uh, I was born in um, New Orleans, Louisiana, and uh, did not leave there until I was 21 years old. Uh, it's really where I learned how to drink. I could have been anywhere. I mean, New Orleans is only good because it's a great, uh, it's a great story to live in a town where the bars never close, where drinking is a religion, um, as, as good as Catholicism. All the priests I knew were drunk, so I knew that there had to be something holy and spiritual about it. It was the eighth sacrament, I think, that uh, they didn't talk about a lot, but they certainly uh, uh, involved themselves uh, deeply in it. And uh, my family always had booze around, although I don't think uh, my mother was an alcoholic. My father was, I believe, from what I can hear. The stories I've been told, he left like a good alcoholic should when I was two years old. Um, and uh, I never saw him again. Uh, he died of this disease uh, at some point in the 70s. I was uh, doing a television series at the time. and decided it was time to get to know him and uh, save up uh, enough money to go to New Orleans and see him. And before I could leave, he died. So I never had a chance to sit down across the table from him and say, what, what did you do to me exactly? Let, I, mean, I want to know where I'm from. Um, I used to think that if I knew reasons for things, then I could deal with them. Uh, fortunately, in the time that I've been sober, I've come to realize it doesn't matter why or how I became an alcoholic or why I'm an alcoholic. Uh, the fact of the matter is I am and uh, have always been. I am an extreme person in all regards of my life. There is nothing that I believe cannot be better uh, suited for my lifestyle than having more of something, regardless of what it is. <clears throat> um, I started drinking when I was 18 years old. I, I, I like to put uh, dates on things because it, it gives me symbols that I can then uh, overinflate their importance in my life. <laughs> I was in a rock and roll band in the 60s in New Orleans, and uh, we had uh, played a gig somewhere in Biloxi, Mississippi. And this was uh, 1965, and Vietnam was uh, an extremely important subject of the day, and we met some soldiers who were being shipped off, and so we decided to um, party with them to help them uh, give them a bon voyage party. And we went into a liquor store, and I didn't have a lot of money, and I really wasn't that familiar with booze. In, the, in my house in New Orleans, we had a lot of wine uh, and uh, a lot of bourbon and a lot of beer. My uncle's owned bars, but I wasn't that educated. And so I just started grabbing bottles off the, the shelves um, and got this great cacophony, this beautiful sort of miasma of different kinds of alcohol, from slow gin to vodka, bourbon, tequila. Uh, and I stuffed them in this coat I had, this big coat I had. I uh, didn't pay for them, sort of uh, distracted the 80-year-old woman who was behind the uh, counter at the time. <clears throat> and uh, went to the beach and sat with these soldiers and um, started drinking. And somewhere between the slow gin and the vodka, something happened to me, something that had never happened to me before. For the first time in my life, I, I wasn't afraid. Now, I only know this in retrospect. I had, I had lived with this, this low-grade fear uh, all of my life. From the moments uh, that I can remember, I was never comfortable with reality. I was never comfortable with exactly what was coming at me at the time. And I was always trying to alter it somehow. And before I discovered alcohol, I altered it by lying. Uh, I altered it by ignoring it. I was an only child, so I didn't have any, any brothers or sisters around to have any sort of gauge uh, toward exactly how I was supposed to be living. My mother worked. Uh, she was out of the house a lot. I was reared basically by my grandparents, uh, very nice people, uh, very good Catholic people. Uh, no no weirdness going on there. You know, my grandfather didn't sneak into my bed late at night or anything. <laughs> um, well, once, but it was really, I don't think it affected me, really. Um, sorry, Papa, that's not true. 
Uh, so anyway, here I was in this uh, in this little town in Mississippi, and this, you know, as the Hindus talk about uh, when you uh, when you smoke uh, opium, this dragon sort of uncoiled itself from the bottom of my spine. It slowly moved up and grabbed my brain, and I was invincible for that moment. For that first moment in my life, I felt I was absolutely right in assuming I was better than everybody around me. I'd always thought that, but it was hard to live that life, you know, with all that fear standing in front of you. Um, so I felt great. Uh, that was shortly before I threw up all over the Volkswagen that I was sitting in. <laughs> I, you know, I was insane. I mean, you know, ins- insanity is, is, it has different degrees of reality to it. And I, can, I know now that I was insane from the moment of consciousness. Um, and I don't say that for bravado. It's true. Uh, I relate the story occasionally only because it shows the depths and the lengths I would go to in order to avoid my life. And avoid responsibility, which is something that I take a great deal of pride in now, that I, I try to be responsible in my life. I respond to it. Uh, my wife, who is much smarter than I, uh, says that uh, she believes that life is 10% what happens to you and 90% how you react to it. And I was always the other way around. All my life I was the other way around. Um, I was in fourth grade. I was 10 years old. I had lost a religion book. And I decided that if I went to class, I would be in a great deal of trouble. That Sister Mary Rhino, whoever was my religion teacher, would not accept the fact that I had lost this book. So I had to figure out a way to get away from the responsibility of this, of losing this book. And so I decided that uh, I had to run away from home. So I went to the playground and, uh, and uh, made up some story to my chum saying I had to go across, the convent was across the street, and I had to go to the convent to talk to uh, some of the nuns about music lessons or something. And I walked across the street and just kept walking. And went into the uh, to the city of New Orleans. Uh, our school was right on the Mississippi River, so I walked down the levee toward downtown, toward the French Quarter. And it was going all day. And this is like 10 o'clock in the morning that I had left. And about 4 o'clock in the afternoon, I realized that I couldn't stay out for the rest of my life. I had to do something. <laughs> so, <clears throat> being the uh, good, responsible person I am, I had to think of something. I had to think of something fast. So I tore my clothes, ripped them up a bit, uh, scratched my face a little bit as much as I could, <laughs> roughed my hair. I started walking back toward the school. And about two blocks away from the school, I sort of, sort of assumed this, uh, this sort of crippled posture. <laughs> sort of like Quasimodo, it's appropriate, but sanctuary. And I started crying and um, made my way back to the school. And this, this cubby of nuns sort of saw me coming and, uh, and floated toward me and, and scooped me up. Um, and said, oh, my God, what happened, what happened? And I was sobbing and crying. I couldn't talk. <laughs> My mother was called, uh, and my mother came to the school, and finally when I was settled down enough uh, with enough hot chocolate or whatever they gave me, I told them the story, uh, and I, 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 I was kidnapped. Uh, <laughs> then I got over to the convent, and uh, as I reached the back, this, uh, this large man uh, came swooping out of the uh, uh, bushes, grabbed me, threw me in his van, and drove off with me. Now, I didn't know anything about uh, the sexual issues or any of that stuff, and it was, this is 1957. There was no real monsters running around the streets of New Orleans in those days. I didn't have, you know, people like the Menendez brothers or O.J. Simpson to have a role model about how to <laughs> do this. So I said that he had kept me in his van all day. Just kept me in his van. Why he would keep me in his van, I don't know. But that at some point he had parked his van and gotten out to check his oil, I don't know, and um, <laughs> he gave me a chance to make my escape. And I made my escape. 
but I I'd fallen when I gotten out of the van, hence the, the my clothes were, were ruined, etc. Uh, now my mother, great enabler, I think, uh, in, in in final, and just believe it. I mean, like instantly, I could see the nuns looking at me rather askance. <laughs> but I was taken home and um, sobbing and sobbing and sobbing and sobbing. And I thought, well, not bad. Got into bed. Gave me some Kellogg's cornflakes or something. And I watched the afternoon episode of Superman on the television and figured I was fine until the police showed up to my house. <laughs> now what do I do? <laughs> I got the cops here. This, you know, you know how we are. It just sort of just starts building and building and building. All of a sudden, you've created this universe that you have to desperately keep juggling. And so I told them the story. I told them the story about how this big man had come uh, out of the bushes and uh, taken me away. And uh, um, and even then, I was a, a fairly competent actor, so I was I was very believable and gave them a very intricate description of this fellow. Um, and I think I had seen an Orson Welles movie or something recently. The guy looked a lot like Orson Welles in my mind, so. And they very judiciously wrote down their, in their little notebooks and went away. And I thought that I was home free until they called about two days later and said they had caught him. <laughs> so here's a tricky decision you've got to make. Do I tell him I lost my religion book? Or do I let this guy go to the electric chair? <laughs> and like when Jack Benny hesitated when the criminal said, uh, your money or your life, and after about two seconds, the guy said, what are you doing? He said, I'm, I'm, I'm thinking. <laughs> but um, at that point, the, the jig was up, as we say, uh, and uh, I had to um, fess up as to exactly what had happened. Uh, that's just a little example of how I spent my life. You know, a little example of how much energy and thought and discipline I put in to hiding how I was really feeling from you. And that continued all of my life until I was sober. And it occasionally continues now. Um, it doesn't, it's not quite as dramatic, and I don't put as many people in jeopardy as I used to. <laughs> Cops haven't been to my house in a long time. But all of my relationships, all of my intercourse with humanity was that way because I was just so lost as to who I was, you know, and I don't mean that in an esoteric sort of spiritual way. I just didn't, I, I just didn't know. I was afraid of you. I, I was a coward. I, I lied whenever possible, even if to tell the truth was simple, direct, and would, would extricate me from the situation. It was much more to my liking to fabricate something. Um, <clears throat> Now, there are people in this world that, uh, that had a relationship, had relationships with me, particularly during the 60s, where I assumed uh, another identity completely and absolutely. Uh, and there are people walking around the world now thinking that they had a boyfriend named Preston Macbeth who was from the north of England. <laughs> I'm sure there, you know, there are women in this world sitting home watching television. And I go, you know, that guy looks just like that English guy that I went out with in the 60s. And the marvelous thing about alcohol was that it allowed me to fabricate fabulous universes, and I believed it. You know, and if I believe it, I know I can make you believe it. Uh, and so that's how my life was. Um, I joined the Navy in the 60s to avoid, uh, to avoid Vietnam. Um, some logic there, I'm not sure where, but it's... Uh, I was offered a scholarship to college. I mean, I was offered a lot of opportunities uh, growing up, and I just couldn't be bothered. You know, I could not care less about the long run of my life. You know, it was what was happening right now, 
and uh, what do you have that I might want? And can I get it from you and you still like me? Uh, if I could fulfill those um, requirements, I was home free. Uh, even in the Navy, you know, I've never told this story, but I decided four months after joining the Navy that it was the wrong. I'd made a mistake. <laughs> no, I just flat out made a mistake. Could I leave now, please? <laughs> you know, like Private Benjamin. I know I wanted to join the Navy with the condos. You know, this was not, this was not the Navy I wanted to join. And um, so I made up another story, and they let me go. Um, we won't get into the story. <laughs> Um, but it was the 60s, and it did have to do with LSD. But um, So I left the Navy, went to Colorado, because the guy that used to make my LSD moved there. Um, and that's actually the reason I left. I moved there because I wanted to be closer to the source, you know, sort of like buying organic greens. I wanted to make sure that there was no possibility of it being tainted on its way to me. Um, so I moved to this little town in the middle of the mountains. I'd never been to a place that had hills before, being a Louisiana boy. Um, and I uh, helped him. I helped him make my acid for a year. Um, I got married on the Golden Gate Bridge in 1968, in San Francisco. Seemed like the appropriate thing to do. Um, just insane behavior. You know, it's amazing to me that um, I survived all of that. For, forget winding up loaded dead somewhere. I'm so, nobody shot me. You know, nobody threw me into jail. Um, in 1971, I was uh, given a job in, uh, asked to do a job in San Diego, California, to run a uh, record company that had just begun. And so I went to San Diego to do this job, and two years later, uh, I guess somewhat uh, because of my um, lack of experience in the business, the record company was bankrupt. Um, and so uh, I had to make a decision. And I decided that, um, uh, that I should go to Hollywood and become an actor. No experience. I had never done it before. Uh, but it seemed like the only choice I had at the time. So I moved to Los Angeles in the summer of 1973 and decided, well, within a year I'll be on a series and I'll have a good job and uh, everything will be fine. And um, it was the time of the, the first oil embargo, so I didn't have a car. Um, just, you know, just slowly just ripping out any possibility of a successful life. You know, just very thematically and deliberately sabotaging myself at every possible move. But somehow, you know, I kept moving. I kept going forward. Um, and it was, in, it was it, Los Angeles had actually taught me how to drink. Um, alcohol was definitely the drug of my choice. Uh, maybe being French and Irish and being from New Orleans, it just seemed like the logical thing to do. Uh, it was the thing I was most comfortable with, and I did a lot of it. Uh, in 1974, I met a woman <clears throat> while doing a play. She was in the play with me, and um, I fell deeply in love with her and um, promptly left the woman I was living with to, uh, to go and uh, see if I could destroy her life. Um, we're still married, actually, today, um, and we have uh, three children and a grandchild. And uh, she is, uh, you know, I noticed the hands of some Alanines in the room, and um, my wife, I think, was the poster child for that. Uh, <laughs> I've said this to her, you know, she is the kind of person that if she were in a plane and it was going to crash right before it hit the ground, someone else's life would flash before her eyes. <laughs> And she stayed with me, you know, through, through, through what became the most insane uh, section of my life uh, for about six or seven years. Uh, between 75 and 82, when I got sober, uh, it, got, it just got better and better and better. Um, but I always worked. I always seemed to show up for work. I was making enough money to live as an actor. And uh, fortunately, she had a, a regular earthling job that allowed me to pursue uh, that profession without any, uh, without any hitches. And, uh, and success kept coming in, in little portions. Uh, 
And I said I did a series in the late 70s and learned how to do cocaine at that point with uh, some other actors and uh, pursued that with the diligence that uh, that was uh, my style, to be very professional in my drug taking. Um, <laughs> when I was a kid in New Orleans, I was known as the pharmacist. I would, uh, people would send me things in the mail and say, take this and tell us what it does. <laughs> And I would judiciously take it, sit down, and, you know, like Jekyll and Hyde, start taking notes. Uh, I, um, I sent my family away for a while in the 70s, thought, thinking it would be better if we lived apart because it would be more economical. And I just wanted to be alone. You know, I just wanted to be able to drink myself to death. Um, <clears throat> I don't think that was ever the intention. You know, I don't think I ever sat down and said, I'm going to die tonight. But if I had, it would have been uh, probably uh, acceptable and uh, predictable. You know, I mean, I started hanging out with um, the likes of Belushi and uh, Freddie Prince and those guys that were just, we were out there, you know. It was, we were on the, 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 the edge of the envelope, as it were. And the fact that I'm not playing handball with John Belushi right now is uh, a mystery to me. Um, uh, DUIs, uh, I had two in the same week, and it's the only two I ever had. But, you know, when I, had, when I got those things, <laughs> you know, they didn't send you to rehab. They didn't send you to the judges then. There was none of this program stuff. You know, as a matter of fact, I got, two, I got one of them knocked down to a, a reckless driving without any alcohol thing on it. And the other one, I just paid $700, and they said goodbye. Not a bad, uh, not a bad deal. I didn't get my license suspended or any of that stuff. <sighs> In 1980, I did a film called Stripes, and during that time, when I was on location with um, some other guys, uh, John Lennon was killed during that period of time. They gave us a good excuse to have an Irish wake for about three weeks, and uh, I, uh, I almost cut my nose off during the film. I ran through a hallway, and uh, the door was supposed to open. It did, and my face went through the glass, and the only time I've ever been... Uh, and years later, I was actually beeped, uh, bleeped on the uh, Tonight Show because I told uh, Johnny Carson that for about three weeks afterwards I could do coke like this. And they just, <laughs> just didn't think it was funny. <clears throat> so after, uh, after Stripes, uh, I started thinking that maybe there was a problem with uh, the amount of drugs and alcohol that I was doing. Uh, and uh, I was the sort of drunk that would disappear for a while. Um, I wouldn't... Um, I wasn't violent, and I didn't uh, do weird things at home, although Elizabeth might uh, defer to uh, disagree with that. But uh, uh, I would just go away for days at a time. I would come to on planes, not knowing where I was going. <clears throat> Inevitably, it was always to New Orleans. Um, and in um, the summer of 81, I, I just reached that point where if I'd stayed where I was, I would have gone around the bend. Completely. You know, those millions of voices in my head had gotten to this, this level of uh, screaming at me that I just couldn't even see what was happening in front of me any longer. I couldn't hear myself. I couldn't answer any questions. There was just this barrage of incrimination and uh, hatred going on about myself. And so I decided that I had to do something. And so I checked into a hospital and, um, uh, in Century City and found this blue book uh, on the bedside table of this hospital and uh, read it. Uh, that day, and I thought, that's the problem. How simple. I'm an alcoholic. And I quickly left the hospital because then I figured that uh, since I knew the problem, it was going to be easier to drink in peace now. Um, <laughs> there wouldn't be that nagging thing going on in the back of my head. What's wrong with me? You're an alcoholic. Oh, right, right. <laughs> no problem. Uh, and that lasted for about six months, and um, uh, then it just, you know, one of those nights, I don't know why it happened that night, but it happened that night that I was sitting at a friend's table with as much cocaine in front of me as I always like to have and as much scotch in front of me as I always like to have, and something happened, that switch, that click, that, uh, that, 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 
that phenomenal shift in perception occurred where that moment I could not think of living without a drink and the exact next moment I couldn't think of living with one. And I excused myself from the table and went home and haven't had any um, need to do that since. Um, and as my first sponsor said, you know, when you, when you take a man's alcohol away from him, what he's left with is his disease. And hence these rooms. And when I first got here, I heard the, Mr. Hammer speaking at the beginning of the meeting and the, about walking into the rooms and seeing these things on the walls. Well, all I saw was God. I just saw the word God everywhere. And it was... <laughs> what the hell have I gotten myself into? <laughs> You know, Woody Allen once said that most people think uh, that he's an atheist, but uh, God knows he's just the loyal opposition. <laughs> and that's how I felt, you know. I often say that being as, as Catholic as I am, I have very heavy atheistic tendencies. Um, and so it was very difficult for me in the beginning. It wasn't difficult for me to stay sober. I knew that I had to do that. I mean, it had come to that point where I just knew... Uh, finally inside of myself that that moment of clarity had grabbed me enough to where I knew that if I had go if I would go back out into the world and try to do what I was doing again that I would die uh, slowly possibly slowly and then you know just the, those close calls the night that I smashed a car and knocked the engine out of it I hit this wall so hard uh, and I was unscathed the night that I had fallen asleep uh, with this kerosene lantern next to my bed and woke up thinking it was morning and the pillow had fallen over the lamp and had ignited uh, and it was flaming next to my brain here just, just <laughs> how did that happen it was just crazy you know my first sponsor also said that insanity is repetition of the same action expecting different results you know that's how I lived I thought today's going to be different you know, today I'm just going to go to Musso Franks and have a couple of cold becks just to get the spiders out of my head. And it's 3 o'clock in the afternoon, maybe just a couple of tequilas just to, you know, feel good again, just to you know, get that rod stiff again. And, um, and that's all today. Uh, then it'd be 8 o'clock and I'd need something to eat, so I would go to a Mexican restaurant, just have a few uh, tecates with a, with a uh, taco or something. And then again, it was, you know, time to, uh, I'm getting kind of sleepy. I should try to wake up, so I, mean, I better get to the Hollywood Hills. Then I'd be 4 o'clock in the morning sitting at the feet of some fat asshole um, <laughs> paying him $100 for a gram of Italian baby laxative. You know? <laughs> and crawling home at 5.30 in the morning and going into the garage so that my family wouldn't see me once again. I'd been out all night. Fall asleep in the garage behind... Uh, some uh, pillows and stuff that I had in there where I, where I was building this platform so I could so I could do some Zen meditation. <laughs> and wait till my wife had awakened and gotten our children off to school and she off to work and I would crawl back into the house and, and get into bed and wake up at two o'clock in the afternoon and think you know I just need a couple of beers just to just to settle my stomach and wind up at Musso Frank's again and that went on for a very long time. Went on for a very long time, but that had stopped. So I I I, I was in these rooms and knew that I couldn't leave, but I didn't know if I could stay. Um. And luckily, as uh, I'm sure has happened to many of us uh, here, uh, I went to a meeting one night, a um, typical meeting in those days, where it was mandatory that you smoked inside the room. <laughs> um, someone once described AA as the church where you smoke. Um, and sitting with a bunch of old men and um, bare light bulbs, you know, the typical uh, early 80s meeting where there wasn't a lot of young people and they were disguised. And, hey, I haven't had a drink since 1948. <laughs> Happy, joyous, and free is not the title that I would necessarily give these guys. <clears throat> but um, the speaker that night uh, was uh, an actor um, who I had admired all my life. Uh, and um, my life fell out of his mouth. You know, very simply, every emotion, every almost incident, you know, particularly 
being an actor that I admired and listening to his story, uh, I realized that that I realized that night that I was no different than anyone in this room. I was absolutely the same. You know, just a garden variety drunk with grandiose ideas, um, an overstimulated intellect, and a um, completely out of whack ego. So I knew I could stay, and the whole thing about God, I thought that I would uh, finally reach the point where I could convince you that you were wrong about that particular aspect of the program, um, and everything would be fine. And the longer I stayed, the more I realized that it didn't matter what I believed, as long as I acted accordingly. You know, the old expression of um, that right thinking won't necessarily get you into right action, but the other way around usually will work. And so I found, as, uh, as best I could, old men who had been around for a very long time and uh, just listened to them and did what they asked me to do. Um, I had a big argument with my first sponsor about God. Uh, and I still have arguments about God, but that's neither here nor there. But he gave me a piece of paper, and on the paper he wrote, God as I understand God is, and put three dots behind it and said, go home and finish the sentence. Uh, so I went home and thought about this for a very long time uh, and wrote uh, pages and pages uh, about what I thought God was. Um, and finally came what I thought was, you know, just the, 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 the quintessential distillation of every theory, every religious notion that had ever been conceived about God. And here I had created the perfect one. And I brought it back to him. And he took it, he didn't even look at it, he just rumpled it up and said, good, now go home and pray to it. <laughs> and I did. You know, praying was something I'd done all my life. Uh, you know, being an altar boy and being uh, flirting with the priesthood when I was 13 or 14 years old for a while, it uh, was something that I enjoyed doing, but it was always for what I could get out of it, you know. It was always in that moment of, of, of desperation when you try to make that one more deal with the deity. Uh, just get me out of this one, and uh, I'll be fine. So I had to change that. You know, I had to change. It didn't have to change. It had been working fine without me. He also pointed out to me that the steps are numbered for the intellectual, so that we don't get confused, you know. Um, and, like, again, the extreme person I am, I became, uh, you know, Helen Keller of AA. I mean, I was just a zealot. I was an obnoxious, not that I'm not now, but I was far more obnoxious in those days. I would take the big book into bars and... <laughs> Luckily, luckily, that's changed somewhat. Um, now I just talk about it on national television every day. Yes, I'm an alcoholic, and I play one on TV, um, which is a whole other issue that I sometimes have difficulty getting around. But I got sober. I got uh, active. Uh, I got uh, very committed to saving myself. Six months after I was sober, I went back to New Orleans for a visit. And um, ran into an old girlfriend, my first lover, actually. She had just uh, had a bad relationship with a husband, left, etc. And uh, I happened to jump into her life at that point. She said, I want to go out. I want to go to the old places. I want to be, you know, I want to reminisce and uh, live in memories for a moment and forget about my present time miserable life. Uh, so I took her to the bars that we used to go to as kids, the restaurants and bars. We made oysters, and it was a good night. Uh, and we went to the bar where actually I had asked her to go steady when we were 16 years old. And um, she had ordered cognac, which was my drink of choice. And uh, it came, and it sat in front of her. I was drinking a watered-down Coke or whatever. They, you know, $5 in a New Orleans bar for a Coke. And, <laughs> and she excused herself to go to the bathroom. And um, there was this glass sitting in front of me, you know, this, this gold liquid sitting in front of me. And um, behind her, the wall was a mirror. And I looked at the glass, and I looked at the mirror, and I saw myself. 
And for the first time in my life, I thought, you know, the only relationship that can screw your life completely is if you screw up the one that you're beginning to have with yourself. You know, and, and never did I think that. And never before had that thought entered my mind that I was important. That somehow my life was of significance, if only to me. Um, and I didn't drink it. And um, she came back and she got very drunk. <clears throat> and I took her home. And, um, and those little hurdles, you know, those little moments of victory. I, sc I screwed her brains out, by the way. But that's... <laughs> even not... This is being taped, isn't it? <laughs> Elizabeth, it's not true. <laughs> it was just to make them laugh, I promise. <laughs> no, it wasn't. You know, I mean, I, I found... Um, <clears throat> actually, what I... What I actually did was give her a meeting directory that I'd cut. Um, New Orleans meetings are great. Because New Orleans meetings go on all night long. Because the bars are open all night long. So a meeting will start at 8 o'clock at night and not end until 6 o'clock in the morning. There's, people don't want to leave the room. They know they can't leave the room. Um, you know, it's, it's, um, it's a phenomenal experience. I, I can't... I try to be as, as humble as my arrogant um, opinion of myself will allow me to be. Uh, and particularly when I was newly sober, it was very, very important to me to stay around sober people. Uh, and people I probably would not have drank with, but there was something about them that intrigued me, inspired me. You know, I'm a big, I'm a fanatic on, on semantics and, and what words really mean. And I kept hearing this word humility uh, thrown at me constantly when I was newly sober. You've got to be humble. You've got to, you know, and unfortunately in my mind, being Catholic, humility meant humiliation to me. You know, getting yourself face down on the floor and, you know, in a prostrate position <clears throat> and having some, some priest beat the crap out of you. <laughs> but when I looked it up in the dictionary, uh, the, the definition that really sprung to mind and made a lot of sense to me was that to be humble is to admit that there is someone else in the world that could teach you something about your own life. Wow, what a concept. And there was, these rooms were filled with people that I knew could teach me something about my own life. Because if I was just like you, then your experience was invaluable to me for me to be able to get to a place where I felt like you did. And these old men who had been around for years and years and years lived this sort of quiet, almost zen-like life for the most part. I mean, particularly considering where I came from, uh, that they just looked at what was happening right there. They took life as it came to them, and they tried to humbly move in their lives without the necessity of considering themselves important or making you think they were. And that's real tough. You know, I, I work in a business where people are paid to try to feed my ego. There are a lot of people whose jobs depend upon me being satisfied with them, with, uh, with them trying to impress me. <clears throat> and it's very easy to um, put yourself in a position where you think that's important, where you're important. And there are days when I really do believe I am important, you know. I had a big argument with my sponsor about that. And he said, let me ask you a question. Who won the Academy Award for Best Actor last year? This was like 1985, he asked me this. And I couldn't remember. No. What won Best Picture? I couldn't remember. And he said, hope that the garbage men show up tomorrow. Because that's an important job. You know? You're not important. Just, you're not important. <laughs> it's very simple. 
<laughs> the more I move away from myself, uh, the more I realize that I can be of worth in this world. But it's only when I'm allowing myself to move away from these self-involvements in my life that I realize that there is some good that can come from my existence. Um, my children are... Uh, my son just uh, celebrated a year of sobriety. I mean, he's 18 years old, you know? And he, can you imagine? I mean... You know, I used to tell him when he was 14, I used to, you know, helping loved ones. I mean, if you have if any experience in this, it's the worst, the hardest, the most difficult, impossible situation in the world. Because you've got a child who uh, worships you and hates you simultaneously. You know, thinks you're the best thing in the world and you're the biggest asshole that's ever walked the planet. You know, so I used to just very uh, calmly smash him against the wall <laughs> and say, listen, I'm saving a seat for you, asshole. Right? And that was the best I could do. Fortunately, uh, he got to a point where uh, he was arrested and, you know, drug, the whole, the whole Generation X bullshit. Um, <laughs> and he got sober. You know, I just gave him a cake last week. He's going to give me a cake next week. Amazing. Amazing. I mean, if I had discovered this when I was 18 years old, Good Lord, I would be sober a lot longer and probably thinner. And you know, I I can't express. I truly cannot express the fantastic life that I have been given by my willingness to be here, just to be here. Um, I go to a lot of meetings still. You know, it's difficult for me to be an anonymous drunk when I'm traveling in the world. I can't. Just, it's hard for me to go into a meeting and just dump. Uh, but I do it anyway. You know. Um, because I believe it's it's vitally important for me, you know. I, quite honestly, most of us will die drunk. You know, I look around this room. You know, most most of us will die drunk, and I don't want that in my life. You know, and these, you know, if if, if everything else in the world was destroyed, if every big book in the world was burned, if all of these little meeting things were gone, if that stayed, if just that stayed, it is the most incredible piece of architecture to live a life that is filled with wonder and joy and excitement, and serenity, and, and peacefulness that I've ever encountered. And I try them all. Believe me, when I left the Catholic Church, I wanted desperately to find the answer. I knew that there was an answer out there somewhere for me to be able to live a useful, simple, hopeful, charitable life. You know, there's a bookstore in Hollywood called The Bodhi Tree. And I used to go there, at, dr drunk out of my mind. And look at these shelves, all of these spiritual books that have, that have been written since the beginning of time, and just would pray for one of them to jump off the shelf and hit me in the head. You know, just show me which of you is real. You know, will the real truth please stand up? And when I found that book in that hospital, I knew what I had found. I knew I had found something that was inspired, you know, regardless of how I feel about the deity God. You know, because I've always figured that if, if, you know, God's job is to keep the planets from hitting each other. You know? <laughs> He's busy enough with that. I don't think he takes a lot of time wondering if I'm going to have a parking place at the meeting, you know? Another great, another great, um, you know, God stands for a group of drunks. I'm sure we've all heard that. And it's, that's, that's what became God for me when I got sober, a group of drunks, you know? And ego stands for edging God out. Boy, I, you know... Do the simple tasks that are asked of you in this program. Um, again, I, I refer back to my first sponsor a lot because he was uh, my mentor. He was my guru uh, that uh, showed me a way that I could exist here. 
And he said to me once when I was riling against the, uh, against the, uh, the book, particularly um, certain passages of it, which I thought were you know, infantile and not, not very smartly written, etc., etc. He said, okay, do this. He said, the only way that you can disprove a belief system is to adopt it. You can't stand outside of the experience and say it doesn't work. It doesn't make sense. So he said, if you can, for one year of your life, live this program, I mean, really work the steps, wake up in the morning and know that you are powerless over alcohol, that there is a power that can restore you to sanity, that you are willing to give your life over to that power, whatever that power is. If you can do that for six months, and at the end of that six months, come back to me and say, you know what, this doesn't work. You know, I'm still miserable. My life is still in the shitter. It just doesn't work. He said, then I'll be happy to tell you, you know what, you're absolutely right. For you, it doesn't. Bon voyage. Now, it's been my experience, and I've tried this a lot with guys, that if you do that, there's no way you can come back to me at the end of six months and say it doesn't work, because it will. Objectively, subjectively, I know that this, this paradigm of existence works for alcoholics. You know, I think it could work for a lot of other people who aren't alcoholic, but that's neither here nor there. Henry Miller once wrote an essay called The Hour of Man. He went to an AA meeting with a friend. He'd never heard of AA before. This is the late 40s. Henry Miller's a writer of some note. And he left the meeting, and he wrote this essay. And he said that if, if the world worked like an Alcoholics Anonymous meeting, you could disband every police force and every army on the planet. We are here saving each other's lives on a constant basis, you know. And you're welcome to join. You're absolutely welcome to join. All we ask you to do is change everything in your life. <laughs> Admit that everything you know is wrong. <laughs> and how can you be in two places at once when you're nowhere at all? It's a simple thing. It is not easy at times, but it's very simple. And I love it, man. I just... Uh, I say it's, it's, it's the 60s all over again, you know? In the best sense of the word. It is a, a community of like-minded lepers. <laughs> All of my life, I looked for the lepers because I knew they were out there somewhere. And I found them when I came into the rooms of Alcoholics Anonymous. Each of you is a miraculous experience unto yourselves. You know? And I, I do believe that it's important to, to really love yourself, you know, in the truest sense of the word, to give yourself kindness, to be soft with yourself, you know, and to walk each day knowing that you can change anything you think as long as, you can be the biggest asshole on the planet, believe me, I know. And you can stay sober, and you can stay sane, and you can have an effect on other people's lives that is a, a wonderful experience for them. But you can't do it unless you're willing to be here. I don't think it works otherwise, you know. I think I need you. I never thought I needed anyone before. You know, I always thought that the world would be fine if I just pretended to like you, uh, and I could get whatever I wanted from you. You know, it took me two years to write my fourth step. When I was done, it was about 300 pages long. Um, actually, it took a year to write it. It took a year to figure out which form I should write it in. You know? First-person narrative or third-person overview. A dialogue. Maybe a dialogue would be good. You know, me and my soul talk. I am such a pompous ass sometimes. You know? But I, once I got here, I didn't leave. You know? And for 14 years, I have been willing to show up and suit up and make mistakes, not judge you, be harsh on myself, and easy on my soul, as Valentiny or as Hallmarky as that sounds, 
I don't know any other way to describe what I have gone through in the, uh, in the past decade and some odd years. My family is intact. Uh, they are happy. Uh, I am ecstatic with uh, my life. Uh, my career is where it should be. And I know that at any moment, it could be wiped off the face of the earth. And I better know that being sober is enough. Because no matter how much I get, it won't be enough. That extreme person in me knows that there isn't enough of anything. So I better be happy with nothing before I can have something. I'll leave you with this story to, to just demonstrate. Um, in the uh, middle 80s, I was given an award for uh, acting, an uh, Emmy Award for this television show I was doing. And I had worked a long time to do that. I was sober for three years, I think, two years when I got this award. My tuxedo, my beautiful English wife next to me, I went up to the stage. Um, I was exalted, standing in front of uh, millions of people on television and all of my peers in this room clapping for me, saying, you are the best. And I took this big statue. And um, I walked out into my beautiful limousine with my beautiful wife. And we drove down to our beautiful house by the ocean. And uh, with my tie loose, walked into my beautiful house. And I took this statue and put it on my mantelpiece by my fireplace. And I took my hand away. And my next thought was, you know, I need one on the other end just to balance it all. <laughs> that fast wasn't enough. That fast. But each day I gain a little more self-respect. Each day I, I, I really do try, regardless of the insanity that's happening in my life, realize that it's no big deal. That I am a big deal as long as I stay sober and can be with people like you. Thank you for letting me share. Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed the podcast. Sobercast is ad-free, and we'd like your help in order to keep it that way. So if you'd like to help us be self-supporting by pledging a dollar to a month, visit Sobercast.com and look for the donate links. Thank you very much.